You're listening to IEPs and More with Kathy Greco. Answering your questions and talking to parents and professionals in the field of care and education of kids and young adults. Welcome back to Kathy's conversation with Ann Chiramelli. Today, we conclude our visit with Ann, talking about how to be the best possible advocate for a child with needs. I'll say individualized education plan, individualized education program. If I say, you know, he's got an IFSP, I'll, I'll say he has an individual family service, individualized family service plan known as an IFSP. You know, and yes, it becomes a shorthand in speaking, but there's so many acronyms and they keep changing. I'm constantly Googling, what does this mean? I don't know, because they're constantly changing it, you know. And so like Matthew, it was mental retardation. It's now intellectual disability, which is being abbreviated now is ID or ID slash DD or what is it? There was another one, IDID or something. I don't know what it was, but it's like, just when we think we know what we're talking about, we don't know what we're talking about because they keep changing the name on us. But anyway, so to your point, there are so many reasons people feel guilt. I'm not saying they should have it. I'm just saying this is the emotion that we experience. As Dr. Moses would say, it's natural to go through that. It's just a matter of not hanging on to that guilt you have to let go of it. You have to forgive yourself. Like exactly as you said, is whatever's happened in the past, we can't undo that. All we can do is learn from it and move on. And so we, so we deal with the guilt part of it. The other thing, and this is where Dr. Moses and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross end, is acceptance. I've accepted the fact that Matthew has a disability. I've accepted the fact that I'm working with a variety of parents and professionals. We are in this together. That's great. And I would say at the beginning, to get from denial to acceptance, I'm going to say a year and a half, but I may, it might have been longer than that. Now I'm in there, I'm, I spend 95% of my time in acceptance, at least. And I'm very seldom in anger, or, you know, or if I am in anger, instead of being angry for like three weeks, I'm angry for three minutes, kind of go, I hate the way that system is. Okay, now what can I do to fix it? Do I need to go write a legislator as I did about COVID and people with developmental disabilities? Do I need to write a legis- Do I need to write my legislators and say, where are we moving these people up the line? Come on, let's go. Things like that. What can I do with that anger to direct it? So I'm, I'm in, that, in that cycle, in that emotion less. The other emotion that I've added, Dr. Moses doesn't talk about it because he's using the, the bereavement, is joy. There can be, there will be tremendous joy when you have a child with special needs. I wouldn't say to a family who just had a diagnosis or just had a little one born, oh, you've got so many joyful moments ahead of you. No, because that's not the time for it. But there has been so much of what I would call unanticipated joy, unexpected joy, sometimes almost miraculous joy. You know, things that we thought Matthew would never do. Like I said, the doggone thing at the, at the, at the farmer's market and he's eating a peach. He asked, could, you know, they had samples out and he asked, could I have some of that? And I'm thinking, Finally, I said, it's a peach, Matt. He goes, okay. We're like, whereas before it was like, oh, I'm not doing that. And he ate it and he liked it. So we bought peaches. You know, we now have peaches in our house for the first time in 36 years. Those are joyful, fabulous moments that you have to really celebrate. And the one thing I have tried to share with parents and with professionals, depending on who I was speaking to at the time is please share the joy. Because sometimes we don't see the joy. 
we had an issue. I won't go to a big deal, but we had a thing where we were in a Costco store. A stranger spoke to Matthew, which normally would have meant an incredible meltdown. He was like 10 at the time. He had been working with the speech therapist for years on appropriate interactions, appropriate distancing, appropriate conversations, a lot of things. And so when it happened at Costco, and I'm a few feet away, but saw it happen. And I'm like, oh God. And we're way in the back by the, by the, where the water, the cases of water are way in the back. Thinking, God, how, all my thought was, how am I going to get him out of here? Because it's going to be, it's a heck of a journey to the front door. And he turned to the man who had apologized for bumping into him and said, that's okay. And kept walking forward. Now I couldn't move because, you know, we just witnessed a miracle. This kid who should have broken down, who should have said, what are you doing? Touch me. You should have handled it exactly the way anybody, any typically developing person would have handled it. In that moment, after we, you know, I celebrate, of course, I turned to my husband and said, did you see that? Did you see that? And he's hauling a big thing of water going, what? Did I see what? Of course, he missed the whole thing because he was <laughs> reaching down to grab the water. Totally missed it. This was on a Sunday because, you know, we don't want to be isolated. We don't want to live alone. We go out. Where do we go? We go to Costco on two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. We are part of our community, right? But so I couldn't wait for Monday to get to his speech therapist and say, everything you've worked on for all those years came to fruition right here at Costco. Not in four out of five attempts with 80% accuracy, none of that stuff. In the real world. In real life. Real life with somebody he didn't know, he handled it beautifully. And I am so grateful for all the work you've done in that little closed closet of an office that they call the speech therapy room, this little tiny, what probably been a janitor's closet in a previous life of that school. That's the stuff that I tell parents all the time. We need to share that joy when we see it because the teachers don't see it. You know, they don't know necessarily that he did that and vice versa. If a teacher sees the joyful moment, have them share it with us because we're home alone going, you know, our home or, you know, when you, you know how it is when you pick up a kid from school, how was it? Fine. You don't really know what happened during the day. And um, kids with needs can't tell their parents what exactly, their day was. Exactly. Exactly. I know now there's a lot of kids have little booklets in their backpacks that go back and forth, or there's a lot of parents who uh, schools that email every day, you know, had a great day. This is what he ate. This is what he did, you know, because for a lot of kids, their nutrition is extremely important, et cetera. That wasn't really the case when Matthew was younger, but I, I really encourage people share the joy because it's those joyful moments that keep us going in the not so joyful times. It's like, well, if he could do that, if he could eat a peach, what else can he do? And it wasn't because somebody told him to eat it. It was like he had interest in eating a food he hadn't eaten before. In the role of autism, that's about as big as it gets. Huge. So what else can he do? And, you know, the fact he's 36. And as of, you know, three days ago, he did something he'd never done before. That keeps me going. You know, what's next month going to bring or next year going to bring or the next 10 years going to bring? It is those joyful moments that we need to share and we need to um, cherish because those are what keep us going on the days that, you know, aren't such a great day. But anyway, so that's what Dr. Moses talks about. But I do like to throw in joy because I do think joy is an important part of it. When I spoke to Lori, she told me that um, in her young adult program, especially, she would take videos of <laughs> her students <laughs> and send it to the parents That's so right. they could see what great things were going on. You know, that is such a huge thing now. Technology has allowed us to have to see into the school day. Before it was a written note, but, you know, especially if they'll allow some schools, 
you know, there's rules about videoing, especially if there's another kid in the video, I get that. But like, uh, there's somebody I know who has a little one under three in an early intervention program, and they will do the same thing. Well, they will send snippets of videos of just the, just the interventionist and the child. A big part of it is because right now we've got places where parents are not allowed in because of COVID. They're not allowed in to see those things. So that's a huge part of it is the technology part of it and, and sharing the joy. The other thing is, um, I always encourage parents to feel free to share videos of your child with your professionals in terms of what they can and can't do. Sometimes, unfortunately, we have to show videos of what they can't do because they say, well, they're doing it at school. Yes, but they haven't generalized it to do, being able to do it at home or being able to play with the neighbor kit or whatever. Like when I talked to you earlier about that, Matthew could speak at home, but he rarely spoke at school. When he was in first grade, he would say just like, yes, no, that's, that's as far as he'd gotten. And I'd say to the teachers, he talks all day at home. And they gave me that look, not that they didn't want to believe me, but that's not what they're seeing. And I get it. We, we believe what we see. So I had, this was thousand years ago with the old big boom box, you know, big camera, the big, I mean, the thing was massive. So one Saturday morning, he's had his Cheerios. He's in his PJs. It's a nice, warm, sunny morning. He's feeling great. So I said to him, Matthew, tell me the story of Sleeping Beauty. And I followed him around the house as he told the story of Sleeping Beauty. And he's the fairies and he's the prince and he's slaying the dragon. He's doing all these things. And I brought the video in to his teacher. And I said on that Monday morning, and I said, I just thought you might want to see what he's like at home. She said, okay. I went to pick him up at three o'clock in the afternoon and she's standing at the doorway with hands on hips. And she says, well, that was interesting. I said, oh, you watched the tape? She says, yes. And I brought in several other teachers and the speech therapist and the adaptive PE teacher. We all watched it. And she said, I turned to Matthew and I said, you can talk. And he said, yes, I can. (laughs) And she said, well, I want you to talk in the classroom from now on. And he said, okay. And he did. Sometimes it's as simple as that. But it never, I just said he can do it. And I knew that they weren't seeing that from him. But somehow in his mind, and I don't know why, he felt like he needed permission to be the person he was at home to be that person at school. Don't know why. But once she said, you know, you can talk. Yes, I can. Okay, we want you to talk. Okay. And and she said, you know, sometimes we had to say, Matt, can you keep it down a little bit? But that was okay. They were happy to have to do that. So it's just, it's, it's those moments that keep you going. God bless you. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning experience. And I had great teachers along the way. Some literally were teachers, therapists, professionals, and a few parents. Matthew tended to be kind of the, the, the cutting edge in our district. We lived in a small district. There were only a few other parents. We were more contemporaries than, you know, so there were kids that came behind us, their families you know, were you in Stockton Unified? No, no, we were a smaller school district. So, and, and, and that's okay, but it has less resources. You know, I'll tell you this, he was the first student in the district that we lived in at the time to get occupational therapy. He was not the first child to need it or that would have qualified for it, but he was the first child that got it because I had learned the law for years. I'd been saying his hands are weak. He has no muscle. His, when he writes, it's not even like a preschooler. It's, it's pre-preschool. And I was told, oh, we don't, we don't have anything for that. We don't do anything. And it wasn't anybody being mean or malicious. I don't think they understood the law. I don't think. And they knew that there was no service that their school offered. 
And so it was only in learning the fact that they don't have to have the service, but they sure as heck have to fund it if he needs it to achieve educational benefit, if you can tie it to educational benefit. We did that. It took me a long time to learn that. And finally, I said the magic words, I'm presenting you a letter that says I'm requesting he be assessed for occupational therapy with a specialization in sensory integration. Thank you very much. And so they went out and hired an independent therapist who made him immediately eligible for services and said, yes, he needs them to achieve educational benefit. But the first thing she said to me, to the group, when we had the, the meeting after the assessment was, if only I'd gotten to him five years ago, because she didn't know the history. She just was brought in. And that's going back to guilt. I had been saying these things for five years, but I didn't know the right things to say. When I said, I am requesting that he be assessed for sensory integration, that opened the doors. Right. And in I, writing. In writing. I said it verbally, but I had it in writing and presented him with it. And the special ed director was there. And, and okay, we went on from there. And he, had, he received occupational therapy from then through to when he aged out. Well, and that's another thing I tell parents. Nobody's ever going to give you a menu list, right? You're never going to know everything that is available. So you really have to sort of try to talk to different people, professionals, and do your own seeking because a parent knows their child better than anyone. Absolutely. And part of it, it goes back a lot of it. I know I'm kind of a, a Johnny one note on this, but about learning the law is because, so I got ed code, right? And ed code says, and it says in ed code, which I love, this is not an exhaustive list. In other words, the fact that you don't see it doesn't mean you couldn't be entitled to it, right? It's not an exhaustive list. I always just, I pounded that home to parents all the time. The fact that you don't see it on there doesn't mean you can't ask for it. Okay. Of course it has to be tied to educational benefit, but they said things like physical therapy. Well, I knew what physical therapy, they said occupational therapy. Part of it was my error in not knowing what occupational therapy was. Because to me, again, not having a background in this and not being smart enough to look it up at the time, occupational therapy was to me like, you know, the violinist who breaks his hand and can no longer be a violinist. He can no longer earn his occupation the way he used to, right? Or perform his occupation the way he used to earn his livelihood. I didn't think that applied to Matthew because I didn't understand what occupational therapy was. Once I started saying, well, okay, what's this other therapy? You know, and I, I did have um, a, an adaptive PE teacher who was a fabulous advocate for kids with special needs said, well, you know, and adaptive PE is physical. It's, it's gross motor. You're talking about fine motor. I went, oh, okay, here's a clue. Now I, not have, now I need to find out what are fine motor and how do you get fine motor? That was a big clue to help getting things. Somebody gives you a little piece of information. You do a little bit more research. You do a little bit more, more research. Even the fact that it, it had always been in code that occupational therapy was something he would be entitled to if it needed it for educational benefit. But I didn't understand what that was. I wish I had asked the questions much earlier just to say to us, somebody saying, what is occupational therapy? Once I finally did, they said, oh, we don't have that here. I walked away not realizing because I didn't understand fully the law then. The fact that they didn't have it didn't mean he wasn't still entitled to it. That they weren't legally obligated to right. provide it, to find to it. To fund it. Yeah. Yes. Fund it. And that's what they ended up doing is they did not provide it, but they funded it. Through How it. did you all those years ago know about sensory integration? Through research, literally. And it was just starting, but it was one of those things where finally, like I would go look up articles on occupational therapy 
I would go talk to somebody who was a physical therapist, but kind of knew a little bit about occupational therapy. I started reading medical journals. I mean, I only understood about, you know, a quarter of the words they said. I spent most of the time with a dictionary next to me trying to figure out what the heck they were talking about. But you pick up those little keys. So first I picked up fine motor. Then I picked up occupational therapy. Then I picked up sensory integration. I was like, whoa, what is this? This is interesting. It, it's, it's all about moving to that, that evolution and learning from it and finding professionals who were fabulous and wanted to help children. You know, once you meet an occupational therapist, they're like, I'd love to, I'd love to work with kids like Matthew. And at the beginning, we worked with somebody who she really worked with stroke victims. She says, I've never worked with children, uh, but I'm certified. So let's go, you know? So, and so we did different things. We, and we did things formally and we did some things informally and, and eventually led to the school district funding um, services. And like I say, he received those for the remainder of his educational career in different capacities through different vendors. I, I think the world has changed. I think the educational world has changed significantly in the 30 years that I've been involved with it in that I see schools, at least the schools I've worked with, were more open about offering services. And one of the things was after Matthew received occupational therapy, whenever I would talk to anybody who had a child similar to whose disabilities are similar to Matthew, regardless of what school district they lived in, I said, and you, you might want to request an assessment for occupational therapy slash sensory integration. They would ask for it, and frequently their children would qualify. About oh, probably five years after Matt started receiving his services, and a few years after I was working, I talked to a parent from the same school district I lived in, that small school district, and I started to say about occupational therapy and sensory integration. She goes, "Oh, we already have that. The school district got that for our child." And I well, just isn't thought, that wonderful? Amen. Because you know how many IEP meetings I sit in in the same school district and have to tell the same IEP team. Wow. The same thing that I just told them last week. So that's where I said where we lived in a district where once they learn about it, it was something that they then shared with families. Maybe this is something we need to assess. And those are the kind of professionals you love to be working with. Yeah, you know? because those I also have come into contact with where they don't know, right? Mm-hmm. They don't know what they don't know. Right. And in this day and age, it's not like when you started Now, because there are so many disabilities and people are more familiar, schools have created programs. Right. And so now what happens in some occasions is they try to fit every kid into one of their programs. And though those programs may actually serve a great number of the population, they are not appropriate for every kid. And when you come to a team that doesn't know what they don't know, and when I try to talk to them about behavior and they haven't seen a kid who has these challenges and their eyes glaze over, right? And then finally they understand. However, we get the clinic setting, the behavioral program in the school to have the powers that be in those schools embrace it and take that program and serve other kids with it. That's the hallelujah moment when we're all working together, learning from each other on one team. Absolutely. And my thing is, it's to me, the heart and soul of any IEP are the goals and objectives. 
because we had, Matthew had goals and objectives, let's say for speech, right? And he was in high school and he was receiving speech twice a week for 20 minutes. One small group, one one one-on-one group session and an individual session, 20 minutes each, right? Okay. So now he's going to an adult day program served not through our district anymore, but rather through the county um, special education local plan area, otherwise known as the SELPA. Um, You're good, Anne. Love these acronyms. Love these acronyms. Well, for most part, you say you say to people, "Oh, yeah, the SELPA." If you ask them what it stands for, most of them don't know. Special Education Local Plan Area, but it's a county program, SELPA program. There, to, to your point of, we have this model and we fit kids in it. They said, "Well, okay, we have speech, you know, X number of times a month. We don't do one-on-one; we do group." Okay, let me look at his goals and objectives that needed this level of service, how do we still go to those goals and objectives and not have that level of service? Where's the individual and individual? Say that all the time. I stands for individual. And so that now took it into, it's not what I want because I learned long ago and far away to not talk about what I want. What does Matthew need to achieve educational benefit? As a team, we all agreed he needed this level of service in order to achieve what we hope to achieve these goals, which were realistic speech and language goals. And generally proposed by the school, right? I mean, generally the school is the one who proposes the goals or goal areas. Yeah. And we were pretty good working at them collaboratively. You know, what does he need? You know, okay. Especially like one of the things that we, I really pushed for, especially in high school, was working with this speech teacher coming into the gen ed class where Matt is sitting in a gen ed class with gen ed students. And how do you, how was his language? This was hard for a speech therapist because they're not used to doing this. But I said, it's not about how well he speaks to you or how well he speaks to the other special needs kids, some of whom he's known since kindergarten. It's how well is he going to speak to his typically developing peers? And so God love her because this was hard for her, she agreed to, to do her 20 minutes with him in group in the gen ed art class. Because, you know, once you get the instruction for what you're supposed to do at art, you sit at the table with four or five other people and you talk while you work on your art project, right? So she came in and worked with him, saw what he was doing, saw where he was good, saw his hesitancies, saw his strengths, saw his weaknesses and said, I have to rewrite this plan for him. Because now I've seen him not one-on-one with me or not with other kids with special needs communication issues, but with typically developing peers. So then we sat down as a team and talked about rewriting goal. And that was fabulous. And I am totally indebted for her for getting out of her comfort zone because I know that was hard for her. She was such a dedicated professional. She did it because she knew it was right for Matt. God love her. That was those goals that we were working on now that we had to talk about being shifted over to a more stringent program. We had to have some serious conversation with this self IEP team about fulfilling goals and objectives. It's one of those times where it's like, I don't want to throw out the word fair hearing or the term fair hearing, but I know the law and I know what it says about goals and objectives and he didn't change. So why are we changing his goal? The only thing that changed is the medium for, for helping him get to goals and objectives. Right. His placement, his setting. His his placement and their structure has changed, you know, but you still have speech therapists available. You still have all these things. We negotiated to something that we could both live with. There was no fair hearing. And he received 
individualized speech as well as group. And that's what he needed. Had it again for the remainder of his stay in that program. The other thing I tell parents about that topic really is that you can't only have one IEP meeting a year because if something's off track, you've lost a year. And unless you sit into a meeting with the people working with your child and talk about the goals and objectives and where they're meeting and what's going on, the implementation of the IEP, right? Because an IEP is a paper document. And unless it's implemented with fidelity, it has no life. And the only way you know that is to meet and talk and make sure on your own. And in my case, I don't, there were some years when we had more than, I think one year we actually had like five or six IEPs and it actually was a very good year. Part of it was because he was doing so well, he was blowing through goals and objectives. So it was a great reason to be meeting because we need to keep writing more goals and objectives, which I mean, he was flying on all cylinders that year. My thing was not so much, there were many, many years where we had one IEP meeting a year and I was okay with that because to your point. I knew at least quarterly, if not more often than that, where he stood with all his goals and objectives. Some of it was because I was in written communication with the, with the professionals. Some of it was I was one of those parents that for many, many years was on campus every single day picking him up. So it's easy to say in conversation, how do you do on that math that? Or how that you know, so it, you know, so it gener- oh, do we need to tweak his goals and objectives? So it wasn't a formal IEP meeting. But there was that communication, however you do it, be it in person, be it, be it text, be it email, whatever. You're absolutely right in terms of you need to know minimally quarterly where the progress is or isn't happening because you don't want to wait a year to tweak it. I would say to parents when they start something out, you know, a new service, I'd say give it two to three months. If you don't see progress toward goals and objectives, you need to be talking about sitting down and saying, what's work is, you know, first of all, is he getting the service? Number one, because sometimes it may be, oh, the therapist was out. We didn't, you know, so is he getting the service? If he's getting the service, why is he not making progress? Is there something different we need to be doing? Maybe our goals weren't right in the first place. Who knows? But right. But you don't know unless you talk about it. Exactly. And unless as a parent, you inform yourself, Right. Absolutely. And, you know, coming from having spent a lot of time professionally in the early start world, birth to 36 months, those individualized family service plans, IFSPs, are every six months. Right. Because those children change so quickly. And I also worked a lot in the world of intense autism services for children. Those IEPs were held quarterly. That was mandated as part of that program. They were, they were quarterly because of that exact same reason. You don't want to put a year in and find out you wasted it. If there's not progress after three months, let's examine why. And so, yeah, and communicate. It's like most things in life. Communication is the name of the game. Yes. And if you had to, to give parents one piece of advice, you having been in this journey as a parent and as a professional, what is it that you would say to parents? I would say to to try to surround yourself with people who are passionate about whatever skill they have. You want a passionate speech therapist. You want a passionate teacher. You want a passionate person who the fire is still burning within them. They still want to do. People got into that profession to help your child. So what can I do to help that professional help my child? Because I cannot teach my child. 
He does not want to learn from me. He's made that painfully <laughs> obvious over the years. But so, but he would accept things from professionals. So what can I do to make sure that I am working with a professional? I make sure they understand Matthew. You know, I provide them with information on autism. I provide them with information on Matthew speaks, how he speaks. When you have a special need child, it takes a metropolis. There, are, I, I literally know thousands of people because of Matthew over the years. Thousands. AIDS, therapists, teachers, adaptive PE, speech, whatever. Church people, school people, doctors, lots of doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists. I, there is a metropolis of people who have helped us get to where we are. And we continue always to search for those people who are going to help Matthew move forward. And if we find someone that we don't think is going to help us with that, we move on. We find a different doctor. We find a different therapist. And I, I would imagine over the years, you have learned to trust your instincts about your child. Yes. I, 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 I don't know that I always trusted the mom voice when Matthew was young. I know I didn't. I have learned, yes, to trust the mom voice. I have also learned to recognize that I may not have the answer. Oh, he needs to do this. No, but what I need to do is raise the issue to people who have knowledge in a variety of resources. I was just talking to somebody earlier today who has an issue with a child who's a young child who's had speech, who's got speech issues. And she's talking about, well, maybe we need to do American Sign Language and all this. And I said, yeah, I get that. I said, have you thought about PECS, the picture exchange system? And I explained some things about it. She goes, oh my God, I completely forgot about PECS. I said, well, your little guy does not have cognitive impairment. He might think it's kind of fun to play with the cards and do this because he has not acquired language yet. So it's not that one way is the only way, but it's like I needed to, to let my mom brain say, I need to explore this further and I need to find people. Um, one of the wisest things that my husband ever said was, we will listen to everybody and then we will make the decision what's best for Matthew. That is the wisest piece of advice. I have to go back to this parent you were just talking about. Are you familiar with the system Prolo Quo to go? Mm -mm. So another good thing for parents in that position to request is assistive technology assessment. Mm -hmm. And now it's like pets, only they can put it on a little iPad. So the kid can learn. They can go to McDonald's and order their menu item. Isn't it amazing? I know um, this little child is like not yet three yet. So he's, he's a little bitty one. But I know someone who is 25 years old uh, on the autism spectrum has not acquired language, but has had assistive uh, devices a good amount of her life. It is just amazing how she can manipulate this machine to effectively communicate. It is so liberating for her. It is. And for the, the students who are significantly language impaired, the problem is people who are teaching them, interacting with them, sometimes have the notion that because they can't communicate, they don't know anything. There was a wonderful special ed t- uh, director in this area years ago. She went on to be an assistant superintendent and just retired, but she used to tell her IEP teams, no, we have to assume they know everything. We have to teach them how to tell us what they know. Children who, who do not have not acquired language absolutely communicate. 
it's just a matter of learning how they communicate for yeah. us to learn, not for them to learn, for us to learn. You know, I, I, there's a, a little one I know who's uh, just turned two and has is having uh, significant speech issues, but she communicates very effectively. You know, when she does not want to eat that food, you know, when she wants to go outside, it's not the form of communication that, that we're hoping will be the end result. But if we honor her and respect, she's telling us very clearly what she wants. Um, the other little piece of advice I throw out there is a quote from a, a book, um, a special education book, uh, uh, and right, the name of it escapes me at this moment, but it was never accept no from someone who doesn't have the power to say yes. You have to kind of let that wash over you a little bit. And that is whether it's you're sitting at an IEP meeting or talking to your insurer, it has nothing to do with special ed, really. It has to do with, there's a lot of people, when you get them on the phone, receptionists, number one, having been one, I know this for a fact. You ask them something, they go, no, we don't do that here. That may be a very true statement, but that doesn't mean they're not responsible for doing it. But it's not at her job level to know that. Right. And so, you know, that like my whole thing was like when I was talking about occupational therapy and they said, we don't do that here. Whoever was acting as administrator, it was in their job description to have known that. And unfortunately, either they didn't know it or chose not to say anything. But I needed to get to somebody who had the power to say yes. And then we made things happen. And in my case, I ended up presenting that letter to the special ed director. And suddenly we had things happen. You know, We have had a horrible problem in this area for decades with the regional centers. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what happened. Parents will call and say, these are all the things, you know, that are going on. Mm-hmm. And the receptionist will say, oh, no, that that would not qualify to be a client of the regional center or, oh, you know, oh, you have autism. Well, no, that's not severe enough. And parents believe that because this person who answered the phone there who has no idea what the actual law is about assessing in that environment just gives you that information, they take it, they close that door and they never look back until much later when they learn, oh yeah, no, no, that's the place. I always talk about it's a comma, not a period. It's like, it should be, we don't provide that service here, comma, but let me, let me get you in touch with somebody who does, or I do not know the answer to that, comma, let's move on. And unfortunately, it becomes a sentence with a period at the end instead of that comma and going on to the next phrase. I've seen this, I know of a school district, this is very long ago, but I know of a school district that had to pay a lot of money because the receptionist told a parent that they didn't serve a child with a specific disability when they were born. And um, they were 100% wrong. And they had to, that school district paid a lot of money to educate right. that child later on. The child's fine. Everybody's fine. It's all good. Yeah, well, and hopefully they paid some good money to educate their employees as well, exactly. because exactly. that person wasn't doing it to be malicious. That person probably truly believed what they were saying. Well, and then this happened to be a small school district of which there are many out there that gave that service, that contracted that service out. The person who answered the phone had no idea. She just knew they didn't have anybody there that provided that service, which was a true statement. But she, because she's a receptionist, didn't know anything about eligibility. And we always talk, you know, when I would have parents talk to me about, oh, I'm going to call the regional center, or I'm going to call the school district, or what I'm going to do it. First of all, our thing is put it in writing. But yeah. secondly, is do not allow yourself to be screened out over the phone. You know, it's always then I need, I am requesting to talk to your supervisor, or I'm going to put it in writing, or, you know, putting it in writing is the best way, as you know, because it starts the timeline anyway. But it's, it's learning those things, the subtleties of the law, 
that really empower parents. And that's why I am such a huge proponent of IEP training, because when you know the law and you can sit at the table and feel like you're on solid ground, it empowers you so much and it allows you to, because some parents have felt that they felt not because anybody was intimidating, but they felt intimidated because they weren't knowledgeable enough. Not, you know, the old thing, knowledge is power. When I understood the law, I became a much more active participant in IEP meetings and a much better advocate for math because I knew the law and I understood it and I had the expectation that it would be followed. Well, and that's sort of why I do what I do with my parent groups. Mm-hmm. And almost every parent in this area has my cell phone number and my email address because they can't always wait a month for an answer. Right. So they will come and say, wait, the, so-and-so told me this, is this right? You know, right. and then I have to say to them, well, that's partially right. Or yeah. give them an answer and some legal background to go back with right. their question or their request. And often what I do with parents in my groups, because I'm an outside the box thinker, I come up with ways. We talk about different ways to get to your end result without going through that straight line. You know, sometimes you have to sort of weave around to get there. I was a firm believer in what I, what I called the jeopardy approach (laughs) was putting things in the form of a question, even though I knew the answer. Oh, me too. And and it's like, you know, it's very interesting when you put it in the form of a question. And then I would say to them, oh, wait a minute, because I I have my beloved Special Education Rights (laughs) Responsibilities book by Disability Rights California, and I took it to every single IEP I ever attended. I would sit there and say, oh, is there anything in Ed Code about that? And sometimes they'd say, oh, yeah, there is. and, And we'd be right on. But every once in a while, I would say, I don't think there is. And I go, oh, I'm pretty sure I read something about it in this. Oh, I just happen to have it tabbed and highlighted. Here we go. Let's read it together. And if you ask in the form of a question, it's far less intimidating. Exactly. Which that's what I tell people too. I I mean, I do it all the time. Play dumb. Ask a question. Yeah. Let them answer. And I also say to parents, if they tell you something is a law or in the ed code, ask them to provide it to you so that you can read it. Well, and that was something I learned from another parent early on, the difference between law and policy or tradition. Like here's the law. Here's what the law says. Okay. We have to follow the law. Here's our school policy or guideline, but policies and guidelines can be broken with the right authority. And then here's our school tradition or our agency's tradition, which may be absolutely in alignment with the law, but may not be in terms of how they interpret it. As, as you do, I would empower parents to say when they say, oh, we don't like I didn't say when they said to me, we don't do occupational therapy here. I didn't question that. And I should have. And I learned to say things like, could you show me in code where it says that I'm still learning about code? Here's my ed book. Could you show me that? Because I couldn't find it. Could you please show me? And then then they kind of go, well, I I think it says it. And, and sometimes we'd find out it was, a, I was a little bit right. They were a little bit right. One of us was wrong, you know, whatever. But also it's like, well, that's the policy of our school district. Okay. Who do yeah. I need to talk to about changing the policy either in general or getting an exception to the policy? Never accept no from someone who doesn't have the power to say yes. 
Sometimes you have to go talk to the superintendent. Sometimes you have to talk to the board of trustee. You know, I used to talk about, remember, your, your, every school district has trustee meetings and you're usually allowed two minutes of public comment. Get on the agenda. Give your two minutes of public comment. It's very powerful. And you are amazing. Really, <laughs> truly amazing. Are you still working with families? I do it very, very little at this point. I do, like I speak at Lori's class. I do public speaking kind of thing, but I don't do individual advocacy anymore. All under the grace of God. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for inviting me to speak today. And thank you for what you do for families. It yeah. warms my heart to hear that you have a parent group because they're getting harder and harder to have. And I just, it, I love that you're offering that opportunity to families to get together and talk. And I feel so blessed to do this work. You know, I, I always say there's the draftees and there's the volunteers. I was drafted. This was not a field I was going anywhere in. I had a whole different professional life going. I was in management. I was working in San Francisco. And then, you know, Matthew came and I became a draftee. And I am eternally grateful to people like you who are the volunteers who choose to go into this profession, who choose to serve our children, who choose to deal with parents like me that can be a little wackadoodle at times and and get have our emotions get the best of us. And sometimes maybe we might say things that later we regret on the drive home. But I am so grateful to people like you that do this, not because it's a good living, because there's a lot of other ways to make a good living, but who do it because they know, first of all, they're, they're doing it for the betterment of humanity. But as my mother would say, they're earning their crown in heaven. You better believe it. <laughs> but also here on earth, because- yeah. People often ask, do you have kids? And I always answer and say, yeah, I have like a hundred. And their (laughs) eyes get this big. And I say, don't worry, I don't have to pay for college for any of them. That's right. right. But it's really, it's given my life so much meaning, truly, that I'm so grateful and so grateful to people like you who share their story, because this is where the power is. Absolutely. We learn through each other. That's why I think support is so important. It doesn't mean that we have to become best friends. We have to agree on everything. And I like the diversity. I like having people with with divergent opinions because that's how we learn. But there is this bond, whether, you know, when you have a, when this child that you prayed for, longed for, and had now has something that is probably going to affect them for a good part, if not all of their life, that's a very bonding thing when you have another parent who can, who you can share that with. And when you find those professionals like you, like yourself, who have dedicated their lives to them, those are the people who we hold, we hold you guys in our heart for all our lives. Because when you have helped our child, you have helped our family, you have helped our life, you have helped us move on. And that's a, that's a huge deal for us. And we don't take that lightly. We remember you. Remember well, you know, I say that often to lawyers who work for the school district. I always tell them my job is way harder than your job because I am dealing with a parent who is trying to help their child. You might go two months with a toothache for yourself because you're too busy to deal with it. But God forbid your child be in a tiny amount of pain. You are going to get to the bottom of that. And so my responsibility as somebody you trust with your kid is to take those very same actions that you would take if you knew how to do it. That's exactly right. That's right. We, we, the parents put their faith in their hands and, and I, I get for you, it's a great responsibility in terms yes. of 
I know that you are, you take that responsibility very seriously. I do. And I take it very personally. I I say things in IEP meetings sometimes. (laughs) I don't ever regret it in the drive home, but things I know parents wish they could say. Not often. (laughs) People have told me, I've never heard you cuss. I say, well, you know. Anyway, I really appreciate you and appreciate all that you do. So thank you. And thank you for sharing your time with me. Thanks, Kathy. It's been a delight. You've been listening to IEPs and More with Kathy Greco. If you have questions, guest suggestions, or comments, you can reach out to Kathy at kathy at grecoadvocacy.com. No part of this podcast can be reused or rebroadcast without written consent. Copyright 2021 IEPs and More. Thanks for listening.